0: I'm Mike Wilkerson from TwoGuysTalking.com, and you're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to the Animal Academy Podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews. And you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Animal Academy Podcast. A few months ago, I had to say goodbye to my 12-year-old golden retriever, Chip. It was extremely difficult as it has been with all of the pets I've lost over the years. Several years ago, I met Dr. Donetta Woodruff at a fundraiser to help a local animal shelter. Since that time, I've gotten to know Dr. Woodruff and the specialized services she provides to animals and their owners, and I want to share this knowledge with you. After graduating from the Purdue University College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Woodruff worked as a mixed animal veterinarian She also has experience as an emergency room veterinarian and as a general small animal practitioner. The human-animal bond has always been her focus, and in 2012, she founded the St. Louis area branch of Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice and In-Home Euthanasia. I'm looking forward to having this discussion and to share an important resource with you. Dr. Woodruff, thanks for being here today.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking uh, through some pretty important topics.
1: Yes, they they are very important. And for starters, do you want to talk a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. I have family that is very supportive of me and my career. I'm very grateful for that. My husband and, and two teenage kiddos. We also have three dogs at the moment. We have some cat allergies in our family. So I get my cat fix uh, at my parents' house mm-hmm. with my clients. But our dogs, we have small, medium, and large. Ayla is our German Shepherd.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: She is about seven. And then we have Ellie, who is about five. And uh, she is mixed breed pit bull Pointer. And then we have Tex, who is our little guy, and Mm -hmm. he's just a year old, and he's an Australian shepherd corgi mix. So we have a little bit of everything at our house. Terrific. So what about
1: when you grew up? Did you have many animals growing up?
2: Yes. I lived on a farm, and so uh, my main focus was actually raising dairy goats. My family and I exported dairy goats to several different countries that provided goats as a source of milk and meat for underprivileged families. And uh, so it was a neat program to be a part of, and I loved having the goats. But we also had um, beef cattle, chickens, some horses, always dogs and cats around. And my my brother had some pigs. So I I had a wide variety of uh, animal exposure as a kid.
1: That is really interesting. You know, I've always wanted goats.
2: (laughs) I love goats. Um, You know, right now, I don't live in a place where um, I'm able to have them just uh, subdivision and that doesn't lend itself well to having goats. But um, (laughs) maybe someday I'll be able to live in a place where I can have them again. They're, They're just amazing. And they have personalities just like dogs do. A lot of people don't realize that.
1: Oh, they're incredibly cute. Dr. Woodruff, what made you decide to be a veterinarian?
2: I think a big part of it was actually my being raised on a farm. And my my family uh, very much instilled a love of animals of all kinds. My dad said um, from a very young age, he could tell that, that I, I loved animals of all kinds and would try to you know sit and tame the stray cats that would wander up to our farm. And so I, I don't honestly remember a time when I did not want to be a veterinarian. I I think when I was about seven was the first time I, I verbalized um, my desire to my family and just focused in on that and, and never changed my mind.
1: Well, good for you. That that was very young to make that kind of a decision.
2: Absolutely. You know, certainly not not the normal type of uh, seven-year-old response maybe, but uh, my, my parents were very supportive and I, I think that's a big part of why I was able to go ahead and, and recognize that dream, um, they, they helped me in any way that they could to, to make sure I got the experience and, and the things I needed to, to follow that path.
1: That's terrific. So how did you become interested in the end-of-life care part of being a veterinarian?
2: Yeah, that is something that I never would have imagined doing uh, when I graduated vet school. It was about 15 years ago, and I actually always, because of my farm upbringing, thought that I would be a mixed animal veterinarian uh, as a lifelong career. And so about two years into that, I ended up having to have some surgery on my lower back, and that really changed things for me as far as my career Um, working with the large animals didn't feel as safe anymore with, mm-hmm. with my back problems. And so I started thinking about other options. I, I worked in an emergency hospital for a while. And then in a regular small animal practice, the thing that I started realizing was that some veterinarians and, and some staff really found those final visits, the, the euthanasia appointments, to be very, very difficult and something that they would prefer not to do any more often than they had to. and And that's very understandable to me, but I didn't mind them. And I, I realized the difficulty, but also that they were very rewarding appointments to be able to uh, sit with someone in the middle of that time and support them and, and help them figure out the best decision to make. And so when I uh, realized that about myself, I, I still didn't have a thought about this type of a a career path no one was really doing an end-of-life specialty at that time it was just something that you know I knew that I didn't mind helping families in that way my parents actually one of the dogs that was a part of our farm family whenever I was in high school many years later he was about uh, 14 15 years old of course he loved all of the things related to the farm but he did not like to be put in a car and driven somewhere. And so um, ever since I was a veterinarian, I had pretty much taken all of the things that Abe needed um, to my parents' farm and I cared for him there.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: when it came time for his euthanasia, my parents said he hates the car and, and we just can't think about putting him in the car on a day like today, not not on his final day. And so I asked the clinic that I was working in if it would be all right for me to take the, the supplies and medications that I needed to my parents' farm. And uh, gratefully, they were um, able to allow me to do that. And so uh, we sat out in the front yard, my whole family and Abe, and it was peaceful and it was difficult, but it was the best it could be. And when we left, I, I told my family that I was glad I was able to to help Abe in that way. And I felt that there was a lot of other people, other families and, and other pets that would benefit from being able to be at home. It wasn't long after that that I started thinking about offering home euthanasia and um, wasn't uh, sure about the logistics of that. and I found about uh, found out about lack of love through an article in a veterinary journal. and hmm. so I, I called and and spoke with the uh, doctors who had started the service and It was very soon after that that I opened the branch of LAP of Love here in St. Louis. And uh, it's just really become the work of my heart. It's it's something that is is difficult but worthwhile.
1: So is LAP of Love a national organization?
2: It is. When I started working with them, that was about eight years ago. And uh, there was only approximately nine or ten doctors across the country with LAP of Love. Over the years, they have branched out and started a lot of different locations. And so last I looked, I think there was about 120 of us um, in a a lot of states across the country. You can look at our website and uh, the St. Louis branch. We we have our own section of the website, but the general web page is lapoflove.com and that map will show you all the states that we are located in. And you know, there's a, a lot of us across the country who feel that it's very important to focus on a good ending for our pets.
1: Some of my clients have actually worked with you. And they said that what they really appreciate is the memorial. You know, mm-hmm. there's kind of a ceremony. It's not just you coming in and, and doing that, saying goodbye. But there's a whole celebration, a memorial.
2: Yep. I do try to get, you know, families to to talk about the good stuff um, that they love about their pet and, you know, uh, some of the things that were unique and made that pet who he or she was. That's just a neat way for us to spend that last time with them, you know, thinking about all the good stuff that made them one of our favorite companions. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, and we'll put the link to that website in our show notes. So if anybody wants to look that up, it'll be available for them. Wonderful. I have had to make that emergency trip with my animals to the emergency clinic more times than I even want to think about. A lot of the times I didn't know that it was going to result in euthanasia or having to say goodbye. But there are other times when I definitely did uh, for whatever reason. And that trip, that drive, was horrendous. Mm -hmm. It just seemed to last forever forever. What you're you're providing to people is a very valuable service.
2: Well, thank you. It's, uh, you know, something when I, I worked at the emergency hospital, it was something that bothered me.
0: Sometimes you come in and you have
2: no idea that what's going on with your pet is that serious and that mm-hmm. advanced, and, and you get very bad news. And at times, you're able then to... Go back home and, and spend some good quality time with your pet and, and prepare as much as you can. But other times, there really isn't time to prepare. Mm-mm. And you have to make that decision right away. I've had that happen with my own pets. You know, I've, I've had both scenarios. Um, I've had the emergency thing happen where there was no warning. And, and truly, we had no idea um, that our, our own dog was that sick until it just very suddenly came on and and I've also had the, the long drawn-out battle with a, a pet with cancer who you know for 10 months we worried about is it time or is it not and I, neither of those is, is easier or harder they're very different and both very sad in their own way things you know about uh, each scenario make it better or worse but it's not easy either way, and when I worked at the emergency hospital, I, I worried sometimes whenever clients would come in and uh, have to say goodbye to their pet and, and then have to drive themselves home. And, you know, as the medical staff, we realized how hard that is, and we would worry about people making it home safely and, uh, you know, driving carefully and, and not being overcome with the emotion of, of the whole day. So, you know, it's, it's certainly something that uh, has a lot of different facets.
1: Well, and I have to tell you, um, you know, after losing my golden retriever the other day, uh, a few months ago, um, just sitting at the emergency clinic watching one person after another taking their animal in and then lighting the candle, knowing that a euthanasia was happening, that was traumatic. You know, that I was there for many, many hours, and that was a very traumatic thing as a client to witness. Again, I can't go back and, and uh, I did what I needed to do at the moment, but to know that your services are available in the comfort of my own home, the, you know, my, my pets are comfortable in my own home, it's something I certainly would look into.
2: Absolutely. I, I tell clients all the time, you know, that we, we have to make the best decision that we can in the middle of the situation that is happening. And sometimes we we have a lot of information and we're able to make a decision that allows us to to be at home. And other times things really don't give us time to to prepare and we're in the middle of something that has come up very quickly and we just have to make the best decision that we can at that moment in time. And, And I have no doubt that you made the best decision for your pets, as many clients do, in the middle of a very difficult time and with... Time. Sometimes we, we wish we could have done things differently, and, and sometimes um, we just wish the whole scenario and the whole situation could have been avoided. But most of the time, that that's simply not the case, and, and we just try to love our pets the best we can in the middle of what they're dealing with.
1: Well, and I think we go into that fight-or-flight mode you know, during an emergency yeah. situation, at least I, I know that I did. And so I just knew that something had to be taken care of, and my dog's uh, health had to be taken care of, figure out what what happened. And Mm -hmm. then amidst that, there's all that denial. You know, we know that our pets are not going to be with us forever, but we never know when that day is going to happen, and all of a sudden it's there. It almost feels unreal in the moment that you just tend to whatever is presenting itself.
2: It absolutely can. I've had families say it it feels surreal to them, Mm -hmm. and I I think that's a good word to describe Mm -hmm. it because whether you have not at all had that, scenario on your radar or whether you've been worrying about it for the last nine or ten months your your heart is not ever ready for that and and I do think that sometimes you know we're, we're trying to find the, the good in the situation so we look at our pets and and we try to find the the good stuff about their day um, even if we know that they're dealing with something that's terminal it's a difficult thing to look for the, the hard things and the difficult signs um, and we do it when we have to, but it's not easy. And like you said, sometimes they just, man, pets are amazing. They don't feel the same emotion attached to their pain that we do, I think. When I broke my leg a few years ago, I, I had the physical pain associated with that. But I also had emotional pain. You know, poor me. Here I am. I have to lay in bed for several weeks because I'm not allowed to put weight on my leg. And so I I had to overcome the physical pain, but I also had to overcome the mental hurdles. And I I think sometimes our our pets are um, at an advantage there because they just try to deal with the physical pain and move on and have the best day that they can. Mm -hmm. Um, But that also makes it hard then for us to see signs that they're struggling. And sometimes Mm -hmm. when they finally do show us that they're struggling the thing that they're dealing with is pretty advanced and, and it can progress very rapidly
1: from there. Well, and it's it's this emotional roller coaster. I've been wanting to do this this podcast with you for quite some time, but I think I told you on the phone that I had just had to say goodbye to my golden retriever. And so I had to push it off because I couldn't emotionally handle talking about this uh, very uh, sensitive subject. But I also know that when my golden retriever presented it you know, with that emergency, all of a sudden he started looking a little better when the veterinarian walked in. (laughs) And I thought, oh, we've been sitting here all day and now he's got some energy. They brought out some food and now he's eating a bagel with cream cheese and maybe we (laughs) can go home now. And so, you know, I felt myself going, oh, this is, you know, he's going to be all right until I saw the x-rays. And so what was really, really hard about that decision was knowing that that burst of energy wasn't going to last very long. Yeah. And knowing that I've had golden retrievers that have uh, been diagnosed with the same type of cancer, I knew what to anticipate going on. But even myself, you know, I was, in, you know, I just wanted to kind of leave and hope that everything was going to be okay. So, how do you yeah. know when it's time to say goodbye?
2: You know, I, I wish there was a, a very easy answer, and um, most of the time there's not a very individual thing and the unfortunate thing about it is that even if you've been through this journey with several pets in the past each pet has their own journey and so if it's a different illness or just a different pet that might handle the illness differently the whole thing can feel new to you even if you've been through it before and one of the things that I I like families to think about when they're in the middle of this is that sometimes you're going to have one huge red flag go up. And that one big thing is going to tell you that it's absolutely time to make the decision. For instance, a dog that loves food and all of a sudden, you know, that they're dealing with this illness and now they refuse food and and they're not eating at all, even their special favorite treats or, uh, you know, you offer them some human food and they turn it down. And, and at times, you know, that can be the one big red flag that goes up and you just know that, okay, you know, my dog would never turn down food. So it is time. But often, there's not one big red flag like that. And it, it instead it's it's a cumulative effect from many small red flags that all add together. And so I like to say that there are some dogs and there are certain breeds that are more like this, but of course every dog's an individual. A golden retrievers, like you said, you know, your dog would always eat and have that bagel and cream cheese. Mm-hmm. And there are some dogs, they will eat their way right into the gates of heaven. And they don't care that they have a lot of pain if there's food there they're going to eat it and so they may not always stop eating but they might have many small things that that add up like you come home and they don't come and greet you at the door and that mm. by itself maybe not a big red flag but you add it with the fact that you know you've you've offered um some favorite foods and and they only take a bite of it or maybe you usually go out on a walk together every day, and you go for 20 minutes, and this time they can only make it five minutes, and you get their favorite toy out, and, and they might brighten for a moment, but quickly they lose interest or they, they can't play. And all of those things together, when you add them up, might mean that it's time. So I, I ask families to, to think about the things their pet enjoys and loves, and we know that that's different for a a 12-year-old dog than it is for a 2-year-old dog, Mm -hmm. but people know their pets well, and Mm -hmm. they know what their pets love and enjoy, and if, if those things are not sparking joy anymore, there's a lot of little things that are all taking a piece of the quality of life away, then it may be time, and there are some good tools out there. Everybody has, of course, a little different perspective, and sometimes we see that within families. The way a husband looks at the situation might be different than the way a wife looks at it. Now, maybe that's because of their personalities, or in some families, you know, uh, the husband might be the early riser, and he sees the dog every morning first thing. But the wife, she's up later at night, and she seems to see different things going on with the dog late at night. And so it's important for a family to talk to one another as well and get each other's perspective and say, you know, when I've been home in the afternoons, this is what I'm seeing.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And so when a family uses some of the tools like a quality of life scale or uh, a pet health journal, there's an app uh, called a gray muzzle app. and, Hmm. And it's a free download and it's very simple, but it's good for people who are visual every day you go into your app and you Say today was either a red day, a yellow day, or a green day. And so um, it takes only a moment at the end of each day. And then you can look back over the week and see how many red days there were. Or you can ask it to show you a pie chart from the last four weeks. What percentage of the days this month were bad days, were red days? You know, if each person in the family kind of keeps tabs on things like that, and then you compare Those are some good ways to have a little bit more objectivity when you're looking at this really big decision.
1: I didn't know that existed. We're going to have to put that link in the show notes, too. I think that's awesome. I know that when my um, nephew lost his golden retriever many years ago, he was the one that reported to the veterinarian what the symptoms were. And he was probably 14 or 15, I believe, at the time.
0: Wow.
1: So it teaches people about life and death.
2: It does.
0: And
1: unfortunately, our pets don't live with us, you know, as long as we'd like for them to.
2: No, and I I think that that, you know, you bring up a good point there as well, because a lot of families will um, ask my opinion about including everyone in the family in this process and this decision. And even in the final visit, so many families ask, should my child be there? Uh, Of course, there's some individuality to that. And there's also some things related to age, of course. But a lot of times, the best answer to that question uh, is twofold. Number one, you know your child well, um, and you know about how they handle difficult situations. And number two, ask them. If they're Mm -hmm. old enough to, you know, have you talk to them about things, um, and really, you know, even a four, five, six year old, in some cases, they're old enough to, to tell you whether they want to be there or not. And if they don't know, that's okay. But some of them have very strong opinions about whether they want to be with their pet during those final moments. And I do think it's important for parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents to acknowledge that you know children may have a strong opinion and they may really want to be or really want not to be. And,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: so bringing that up to them and allowing them to be a part of the decision, it lets them feel like they have a little bit of control over a situation that really is is out of their control. Mm -hmm. It does help.
1: And there are a variety of different resources that can help kids deal with the loss of a pet, depending on their age.
2: Yes, that's right. There are a lot of books. There are, uh, locally, we we have uh, several support groups that meet um, Mm -hmm. for different ages, of course there are a lot of articles and resources for parents to read about helping their children through pet loss. And I think it's very important when parents come to me and they start asking about those things and, and they're not quite at the decision time yet. I think that's so good because then they can take a little time to try to help their children prepare. And, and as you said, um, prepare them to understand life and death in their own childlike way, mm-hmm. um, they can have a very good handle on things. Some <laughs> children are even more well-adapted, and, and they uh, they handle things better than some adults, and, and they never cease to amaze me. One of the most favorite things I, I had a little girl tell me at a, um, a home euthanasia visit, her dog apparently had always loved to chase squirrels. And one of her siblings was worried that the dog would go to heaven and try to chase the squirrels. (sighs) And the little girl said, oh, it's okay. In heaven, it's a game for the squirrels and the dogs. And they all like to play. And the dog catches the squirrel and kisses them and sends them on their way to be chased again another day.
1: (laughs) So cute.
2: Yes. And it's beautiful. A A child's perspective can bring a lot of... Clarity and joy to the situation at times when um, adults may struggle. And so it's good to have them involved.
1: Well, that reminds me of a booth that I uh, had at Bark in the Park for the Humane Society years ago. And and you were there, too, with your your booth. And I had so many people come over, and I had bathroom tiles set up that I painted white, and I had paint paint. And markers that kids could draw, you know, telling me about the loss of their pet or you know pets that meant something to them in their lives. And what was really cute is that I actually have pictures of all of these tiles that these kids, and then they just took them home with them, that what they made and drawings of their pets. But their their parents really got into it, and they asked permission if they could take one too because they oh, wanted to draw <laughs> pictures of their pets.
2: Yes, and there's a lot of healing that comes with finding some way to memorialize your pet's memory. And that might be a drawing, it might be a photograph that you particularly love and and you print it out and hang it somewhere in your home. But it is important for for adults and children to to have a way to personally honor their pet and the memories that they have. And and I'm grateful um, there continue to Be even more resources for people to find their own unique way of honoring their pet's memory.
1: I believe in the area there are several monthly celebration of life get-togethers that you know people can access to and I'll try to look those up and put those in the show notes as well.
2: Yeah and and it's really lovely Um, you know sometimes there will be candles that are lit in honor or there might be a collage of photos at those events. And it's a beautiful thing. When I I help a pet pass at home, I typically ask the family if it's okay for me to write a little memorial and and put it on our Facebook page. Um, Some families are very private and they want to do that themselves. And so um, of course I, I don't write one then other families have a hard time maybe writing it themselves and, So I'll just put a few sentences or a few paragraphs together from the stories they've told me during our time together and uh, post a little blurb to honor their pets and and their pet's memories. It's a beautiful thing. I I also love when families will send me an email, you know, maybe a, a week or a month or even a year or two later, and they'll show me something that they've done. It might be a shadow box on the wall at home a special rock that they had made for the garden, a keychain that has Mm -hmm. their pet's paw print on it that they carry with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So many ways to memorialize and and keep a bit of that memory close. And it's beautiful to see the creativity that people have.
1: Mm -hmm. And there's really no right or wrong way. It's just whatever fits your own needs, whatever feels right to you.
2: Yes, exactly. I've even had families that... uh, will take an ink paw print. Some of them have me help, and some of them have made the ink paw prints, you know, before I come to the home for that final visit. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, But uh, they do so many neat things with them. Flowers that, you know, someone takes, like, the the pet's paw print um, with paint, and the paw print becomes the center of the flower, and then an an artist will will draw on the leaves and the stem it's beautiful. And um, tattoos, people will get tattoos of their pet's portrait or their pet's paw print or their pet's name. And like you said, for one person, a tattoo might be the perfect memorial. Mm-hmm. And for another, um, you know, it's, it's something more subtle, but in their own way, it's just as powerful.
1: Mm-hmm. Lots of memories and stories here during this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
2: Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. The one question every podcaster needs to ask themselves is why am I still editing my own podcast? We all know that editing your own podcast is the worst part of the podcast experience. Get the editing off your plate and reclaim more time to make more content with The Editor Core. Affordable, talented, experienced podcast editors are ready to take your podcast literally to the next level to make it soar. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com.
1: Do you like what you're hearing during this episode of the Animal Academy podcast? If so, consider having your business, organization, or effort connect with me to see how you can sponsor or be featured inside this podcast. Visit my website over at animalacademypodcast.com and let's have a conversation. Everyone, welcome back to the Animal Academy podcast. Today we're having an incredibly interesting discussion with Dr. Donetta Woodruff from Lap of Love.
2: It's been wonderful to talk with you about all these important topics. Um, I think sometimes the, the passing um, of our pets and the end of their life is very scary to think about, but it's important that we talk about these difficult things so that we can acknowledge the difficulty and help people work through them and and be ready as much as we can be whenever we have to make some, some tough choices.
1: I think you're, you're right. And as a therapist, I, I have a lot of clients that will come in right after losing a pet. And almost all of them say, Oh, first of all, is this is really hitting me hard. And this is hitting me as hard, you know, as a family member or a good friend. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense of guilt and almost reluctance to even bring that up and mention that.
2: Yes, I see a lot of, of people who say similar things when I'm in their home with them. Uh, and, and you're right, there is a big reluctance there. And I think that comes because historically, unfortunately, you would hear a lot of people say, oh, well, it's just a dog mm-hmm. or, oh, it's, an, it's a cat. You can get another one.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And those types of difficult comments really minimized the difficulty and and the level of loss that happens whenever a treasured family member is passing away. And so people are hesitant to bring that up. I I think they feel like maybe others won't understand. Mm -hmm. But often when they start talking with someone, they realize that there's a lot of other people who feel the same way Mm -hmm. and, and have gone through that difficult process themselves.
1: Well, and a lot of people that see me will come in for maybe a couple of times and that's it because they need that validation that what they're going through is real and that they're not mm-hmm. losing their mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to kind of uh, help through the process of, of grief, I often will say, you know, choose who you share this with um, to yes. protect your own feelings because right, right now you're, you're very vulnerable. And so if you go into work, where, you know, you're just telling all, you know, people that may not even be pet lovers, then you may not get something that's very comforting in response.
2: That's very true. And, uh, you know, it's, it's important to be careful who we, we reveal those deep feelings to. And I think that people feel some level, like you said, of guilt when they will say, well, losing my pet is harder than saying goodbye to my mom. And, one of the things that I bring up to them is that as a young child you know you are at home and and your parents interact with you every single day but as an adult who lives on your own you're probably not seeing and talking to your mom every single day now some people might be lucky enough to to see their parents every day or talk to them every day but certainly you're spending more time with your pet on a day-to-day basis as a grown adult than you probably do with your parents or your aunts or your uncle. The pets really do become that family member, and mm-hmm. uh, more than that, they become a non-judgmental family member. Mm-hmm. You know. You come home in a really bad mood at the end of a tough day and your human family may kind of go, oh, my goodness, why are you grumpy? You know, because we (laughs) we try not to be that way with each other, but we're humans and and that's one of our faults. We we don't want our family members to be grumpy and we might give each other a hard time, but our pets don't do that. They just uh, see us and they get excited and just by being who they are, they make our day better and that develops a very strong bond
1: and that's where the guilt comes in i believe too so you said that that very well because it is different but it's deep you know that that loss is very deep and one of the things that i've noticed with a lot of the veterinary hospitals and clinics and they may have done it for quite some time but they will recognize who is struggling with the grief process you know with underlying depression or anxiety or when it's uh, being exacerbated by the loss of a pet And Mm -hmm. there are there are a number of therapists in every state that are trained to be able to deal with pet loss and bereavement. So, you know, I just want to let the listeners know if you are struggling after the loss of a pet, please reach out for help and support and get the support that you need from a licensed therapist.
2: Yes, it's very important because finding that help and and reaching out um, to someone who is trained to give you the tools to work through it, that's invaluable and, and very needed.
1: So, Dr. Woodruff, if someone knows their dog has a terminal illness, do they call you in advance to establish a working relationship with you, or how does that work?
2: Sometimes they do call ahead of time. And other times they may not call us until it's really time to schedule that final visit for their pet. And so our relationship with family that is utilizing our services is different depending on when they find out about us. If the pet has a longer battle with this terminal illness, you know, months of dealing with kidney failure or painful arthritis or a a cancer that... um, you know, they can manage for a while, but uh, eventually is terminal. Those types of scenarios might give a family time to call us and um, and touch base. And so we may speak with them on the phone and do a little tele-advice consultation for them, or we might schedule a home visit where, you know, we really do an in-depth evaluation of the pet and how they're handling their illness at home. Some of the things that are beneficial when we get to do that hospice consultation is at the vet's office, when I was working in a clinic, it was sometimes very hard to uh, to see what the pet was truly struggling with because they've just had that ride to the clinic and their adrenaline is pumping because they got in the car and they mm-hmm. came to the clinic and uh, maybe it's their favorite place. They, they know us and they love us and they get treats or maybe it's their least favorite place and they're scared. But those things and those emotions and those scenarios, it, it can mask some symptoms of pain and at home, we get to see how they really are when they're just relaxed and hanging out in their familiar, comfortable place. Mm-hmm we can look around the house and give suggestions about how to make the environment a little bit more friendly for what the pet is dealing with. And that's usually, you know, about an hour we spend with the family and go over suggestions and maybe change some medications or start a new pain regimen. And we kind of work together with the the regular veterinary office that has taken care of this pet throughout their life Mm -hmm. to, uh, just really take the best care of them at the end that we can. But other times a family, you know, maybe their regular vet has um, been doing all of those things and evaluating everything together with them and they don't call us until it's time for the final visit. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they don't know about us until it's time for the final visit. So many times, uh, the first time that I meet a family is because they've called us to come to the home and they know that the euthanasia is needed. I feel that We kind of have a a dual part of ourselves in that situation. We have the logical part of us, the the part of our mind that says, I know my pet is struggling and this is not getting better. And it's it's actually getting worse. And I don't want them to get any more painful. I don't want them to struggle any more than they already are. So it's time. Then our heart is the part of us that's never ready. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We just... Don't feel, you know, that that we can ever let go of them with our heart. And I think that's the point where we're as ready as we're ever going to be. Our brain is ready. Our heart is not. But that's normal. And so that's when I meet a lot of families. And and I always take a look at the pet and uh, just look to see what types of cues I can pick up on that lets me know that it is a kind time to be making this decision? Because certainly a, a pet's family, they call us and they say, I, I think we need a euthanasia appointment. Um, but then as, as the doctor who comes into their home, I have a very big responsibility. You know, I'm I'm giving the medication that will end the life. And of course, I, I only want to do that when it's for a good, kind reason. And so the burden of that decision does not rest on the shoulders of the family alone. Mm -hmm. Whatever veterinarian is helping with that decision, by giving the medication, they're letting you know that they're okay with that as well because otherwise they couldn't administer that medication. It's something that, you know, we promise in our veterinary oath and um, we all take it very seriously.
0: And I've
1: always asked my dogs, veterinarian, what do you think? You know, if mm-hmm. if I, uh, you know, because I don't always trust my own ability to be logical at that time. Yes. You know, because the motion does take over. So I usually mm-hmm. say, please, you know, if this was your dog, what would you do? If this was your cat, what mm-hmm. would you do? And I've never run into any issues with that so far. It's always been really good advice.
2: I think this is something that I, I certainly didn't. Even if I understood it, I I didn't have the words to to verbalize it when I was a a brand-new veterinarian. A lot of times we feel like we're making this decision and we have to pick the right day, and there's a lot of pressure with that. But there's usually not just one right day. Now, sometimes there is because it's an emergency. And in that situation, you know, things have gotten really bad really fast, and we we must make a decision right away. But often there's a a little window of, of time. And that might be a week, or in some cases, it might be a month, Um, where medically speaking, any time in that little window is quite appropriate for a family to say, okay, I'm as ready as I'm going to be, we we need to go forward with euthanasia. Some families make the decision early in the window, and some families make the decision later in the window. Neither one of those is right or wrong. They're just different, and it depends on the pet and the caretakers and the home environment and the disease, and and there's so many things that all play a role in the decision. And then, um, it's hard to uh, to say, oh, there's only one right day, because there usually isn't. There's there's usually a window of time, and you're right. You know, your veterinarian will say, yeah, we're in that window. We're we're in that right time, and Uh, I think that's a a good thing for families to, to hear that confirmation, you know, that their veterinary team is on board for this big decision that's being made.
1: I think that that was what I struggled with with my golden retriever, because I recognized the window, and it was the beginning, or maybe even a third into that window, probably wasn't the beginning, But I also didn't want it to be a two o'clock in the morning medical emergency where my dog was really struggling. And then I was trying to find emergency treatment at two in the morning when now at least my dog was comfortable. But I also knew that pretty quickly what the outcome was going to be.
2: Yes, and and I think you're right. You know, it's that crisis that we know can happen. And the crisis can be more likely with certain diseases and in certain scenarios. But any time a pet is facing the end of life, we know that a crisis could happen. And for some people, if they get to the crisis, they say, okay, I know the last day wasn't that great, but it's okay. We enjoyed every single day that we could together. And so they have peace with that. But for other families, having a crisis happen is exactly what they're trying to avoid. And mm-hmm. so making the decision a little bit earlier and saying, I, I know I might miss a few good days uh, with my pet, but I'm ensuring that they don't go through that crisis. That is very important to some people. And mm-hmm. so depending on, on which uh, of those resonates most with you, you know, that plays a role in, in exactly what you said. Am I going to make this decision more at the beginning of that window of time or, or wait until closer to the end? And uh, again, there's, there's not a right or a wrong. It's just a multifaceted decision. And you might make a decision today with this pet, two years down the road with another pet, make a very different decision. But doing the best you can in the middle of a very difficult set of circumstances, trying to pull all these pieces of the decision together. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to give ourselves a little bit of grace in the middle of that difficult decision and know that um, we are doing our best, even when it feels very heavy.
1: And that's where it's important to, to reach out, you know, read, read up on um, losing a pet. There are a lot of books, there are a lot of resources, there are online chat groups I can put that in the the show notes as well. And Dr. Woodruff, if you have any resources, we can add those certainly to the show notes. Grief after losing a pet is not linear. And so you may think, oh, the five stages of grief. Well, it doesn't go in any special order. And I think that's where people get kind of confused at the end. And you have the guilt and then you have you know, the anger about why did this happen and it's just all over the charts and you just have to be very gentle, I guess, with yourself and yeah. realize that this is a difficult process.
2: And those different stages, uh, we describe them, you know, really um, they can kind of pop up out of nowhere even when you think you've gone through a stage already. It doesn't mean that it can't come back around. Mm-hmm. And so I, I try to let families know that um, – especially at the beginning, a lot of those stages, they're gonna, you're going to feel them all together, um, anger and sadness and sometimes relief. You've been watching this pet dealing with so many things for so long and you've been worried about that crisis happening. And when they're finally at peace, it surprises people. Sometimes the first time I had a dog that had gone through a long process of disease, um, his name was Bert and, uh, and he had cancer in his mouth. It was a very aggressive oral melanoma. We did have it surgically removed, but you know, the, um, the testing told us that it was aggressive and likely to come back even with all of the treatments the oncologist helped us with. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, i had been worried about it for a long time. And, And after he finally passed, I felt sadness, of course, but I also felt this intense relief, and mm-hmm. I realized, while I, I felt guilty for it at first, that I was just relieved that he he wasn't going to struggle anymore, and, and we had helped him avoid the crisis, mm-hmm. um, and so all of those intense things can Pop up out of nowhere, and emotions you didn't even expect can can be there, mm-hmm. and, and that's not easy. And we do need the support of our our friends who've gone through it, and you know, professional people to to help us through those things, um, and to help us recognize exactly what it is that we're dealing with.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Doctor Woodruff, you have shared so many awesome resources and shared so much of your knowledge. How do you handle your own self-care? What do you do to keep yourself from experiencing what has been known as compassion fatigue?
2: That is something that is definitely a big issue in the veterinary community. We are people uh, in general, um, those, those people who are drawn to veterinary medicine. <laughs> we, we tend to have a lot of emotion and we tend to be perfectionists and we expect a lot from ourselves. And so, unfortunately, the characteristics that make us good at our jobs also make us very hard on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we do have a a lot of burnout and compassion fatigue. And so we we have to be very careful. And educating ourselves and speaking with others that are in our profession when we're, we're having a hard time that's one of the things that has become very important to me and, and to, to colleagues and friends of mine. You know, we try to watch out for one another. And if, if we see that we're having a hard time, you know, just asking, hey, you, you've been dealing with a lot of heavy stuff lately. Or, are you okay? And then mm-hmm. for me, giving a pet a good death, which is what euthanasia is, um, right? That That's the meaning of the word. Euthanasia means good death. Being able to provide that with pain control and making things peaceful and maybe even letting the dog or the cat enjoy some really yummy treats at the end. Those things actually are part of my self-care because I look at what we're giving to that pet and that family in those final moments and, and I know that it's difficult but it's better than it could be and it's rewarding for me and some of the things when I was in general practice that caused an, an emotional burden. Those types of scenarios were, were things when maybe there was something that I couldn't figure out, a disease that we were trying to treat, and we just couldn't find the right therapy. Or maybe, you know, a family that uh, loved their pet dearly and just at that moment in their life didn't have the finances to, to do what care was needed. Those things actually burdened me more than the uh, end-of-life care does, Uh Um, and certainly that's different for every veterinarian, Uh Um, so I I have kind of found my place Uh uh, in in the veterinary world, I guess. Uh The taking time out for myself uh, has become very important and focusing on hobbies and things that bring me joy. For instance, I, I help several families today with uh, their pet's end-of-life experience, and and that's a lot, you know, whenever you're helping multiple families in one day. But I, I find that being intentional about looking for joy in little ways and little places, even if it's just like today, I, I pulled over into an empty parking lot um, that had a lot of flowers there growing in beautiful springtime. And I, I love photography. And so I, I grabbed out my cell phone and I took some photos of the beautiful spring flowers. And, you know, it was only five minutes, but mm-hmm. um, it, it lifted my spirits in the middle of a, a day that was busy. And being intentional about those things, I think, is one of the ways that, that I practice self
1: care. And it's really learning to capture those little things that will boost you up, you know, whether yes. it be music, photography, cooking, playing mm-hmm. with your kids, playing with your your pets, whatever that is that brings you joy.
2: Yes.
1: So important.
2: It absolutely is. And, you know, we never have enough time for those things. We, we mm-hmm. as a society are very busy, um, mm-hmm. each in their own way. You know, whether you're a stay-at-home parent who is – Constantly at the beck and call of a, a, a young child, or you know, you're working three jobs to to try to put food on the table. We are very busy, and we don't have a lot of time to take a whole weekend for self care. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can usually find ten minutes here or five minutes there. And and I think if we just allow ourselves to realize that it's okay to not have a whole week for self-care, focus <laughs> on the little moments of self-care throughout your day and allow yourself to take a deep breath and relax in those moments. It can really add up over the course of a day or a week and, and really truly help us to be grounded in the middle of our busyness.
1: That is really, really important. And the practice of mindfulness in everything that we do, whether it be just sitting down and not having the TV on and just eating a good meal. Um, I remember having a conversation with um, an emergency room physician who was all, always looked well rested. And I knew he worked overnight sometimes.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: I asked him about it. He said, I practice self-care all day long. And at the end of the day, I get on a treadmill, I stare at the wall, listen to some good music, and just uh, jog. And so just find what helps you stay in balance.
2: Exactly. Different for every person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my my siblings and I, I, I'm the oldest of four, and each one of us has very different hobbies and interests. What would be self care for me might be torture for my <laughs> my sibling and and vice versa, and so um you know, just finding what works for you and and what does allow you to take that big deep breath and and relax and feel a little bit of the stress go away
1: well i'm I'm involved in the veterinary uh, social work program at the University of Tennessee, and you know we've talked quite a bit about compassion fatigue among veterinary professionals. And the fact that, you know, the veterinary professionals are so important. And so, you know, I encourage the listeners to also reach out to your veterinary professionals yeah. and just say thank you. You know, they work tirelessly all day long, 24-7 sometimes if they're taking their emergency calls. And they don't get a lot of positive feedback so that is just uh, my message to the people that are listening is to always thank our animal care veterinary professionals
2: absolutely and and i I love that you make that point because it doesn't have to be something big um, it certainly doesn't have to be anything expensive. Some of the things that I treasure the most are you know a handwritten note that someone has dropped off at, at the office, or you know just in that moment of okay, I just went through a very difficult thing with my pet. Maybe they, they had a fractured leg, you know, and that's stressful and it's tough. Um, and if someone in the middle of that difficult thing takes the time to, to just say to you, hey, thanks. I know that your day's probably really stressful today, but man, you've helped me a lot. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it means very little, but I, I'll tell you, um, those are the things that, that fuel us as, as veterinary professionals. And um, when we do have someone who says those things and takes a moment to, to share their appreciation, uh, it really does a world of good.
1: Well, I do appreciate the work that you do, Dr. Woodruff, uh, and for sharing your, your words of wisdom with me
0: today.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me because... As you can tell, this is work that's close to my heart, and I'm, I'm so glad that you are uh, bringing this to kind of the forefront of people's minds and letting people know that it's okay to talk about all these difficult things, and talking about it can actually be very helpful for us.
1: It certainly is, and reaching out for support whenever you need it is very, very important for everybody to realize, too.
2: Yes, it is. And I appreciate what you do to, you know, help the families that are either preparing to make this decision or have already gone through the end of life with their pet and and need that help to process their emotions and, and to deal with it in healthy ways.
1: Thank you so much. And take care.
2: Thank you so much. You as well.
1: The loss of a beloved pet is extremely hard and it has never gotten any easier over the years. Society is recognizing the value of the human-animal connection and the unconditional love animals provide to us. But with the joy of having animals as part of our families, it also means saying goodbye. We don't always know when this will happen, and for those who know in advance that the end is near, Lap of Love offers a valuable service that goes beyond the saying goodbye to your beloved pet. They provide end-of-life dignity so your animals can be at home the people they love as they cross over the Rainbow Bridge. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and please leave any comments in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Alison White licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy podcast.